Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at provisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Tamarack Media Cooperative is looking for a coder for environmental initiatives. Vox Media is looking for a full stack engineer. And Revision Path is looking for staff writers. So check out the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs and find your next job today. You're listening to the Revision Path podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, of course, I have to talk about our wonderful sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. MailChimp is the best software out there for sending marketing emails, automated messages, and targeted campaigns. Join more than 10 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 600 million emails every day. Sign up today at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it extremely easy for you to find that domain name that you're looking for and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today, use our promo code REVISIONPATH, and save 10% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we are holding steady at 31 patrons for a combined total of $212 per month. Again, big, huge thanks for everyone that has pledged your support for the show, your appreciation for the show. Um, There are even some who have pledged over PayPal and just used like a monthly sort of thing. So that's also a good way for you to support the show uh, if you don't want to get the regular updates and things like that. Uh, But if you want to become a patron and sign up via Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path. Make that happen. You get access to some great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, and free revision path swag. So pledge levels start at just $1 per month, and it's a really great way to support the show on a regular basis. Like I mentioned before, we now have a Slack community. So if you're big on Slack, if you love using Slack and you want to come chat with me and with other Revision Path supporters, just head over to revisionpath.com forward slash Slack and you'll sign up for an invite. We've got about 53 people now. I think we just crossed the 50 person threshold over the weekend. Room's pretty active with conversation. Um, And also, I should have mentioned this probably in the last episode, we have different channels in the room. So if you're a coder, we've got a coding channel. If you're a designer, we've got design channels we've also got a jobs channel with a lot of jobs that are posted there that are exclusive to that room and you won't necessarily see them on our job board so if you're looking for a job definitely pop in uh, check out that jobs room and see what you can find again that's revisionpath.com forward slash slack now for this week's interview i talked with well-known london creative director kojo boateng let's start the show all right so tell us who you are and what you do Okay, my name is Kojo Boating, and I'm a graphic designer and creative director, and I work in the areas of user experience design and all sorts of kind of multidisciplinary areas of design. Now, I heard about you through someone else that I've interviewed on the show, Gabrielle Smith, yes, who has spoken very highly of you as her mentor. Very nice. How did you uh, first meet her? 
I met Gabrielle, I can't remember the year, but she came to, she interviewed for a job at ITN, which is independent television news. Um, It's basically like, I guess, the NBC of the UK. And she was applying for a job as a graphic designer. In fact, I actually worked with her sister, who was a producer at ITN, and she recommended Gabby to come in. So, yeah, she came in for an interview, and we ended up, well, I ended up hiring her after a couple of rounds of interviews. Nice. So how long did you two work together? Gabby and I worked together for about five or six years, maybe, I think. Mm. Um, And she was basically part of the design team, ITN, ITV News. So, yeah, we worked really closely together. I mean, when she started, she came in quite entry level. And, you know, when she left, she was, you know, very accomplished and a senior, basically. So, yeah, she did really well. Nice, nice. I think it's always good when you're you're coming in to work at some place and you end up kind of finding that that workplace mentor. Yeah, that can like help you and guide you, not just through, I guess, your job and what you do, because, of course, that's important, but also just kind of guide you through any sort of weird office politics and stuff like that. So that's a good thing. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I mean, I'd agree with that. I think that, you know, part of being a designer or an employee in any organization is about navigating your way through the professional stuff, but also the interpersonal things as well, because that, you know, you're effectively working with people as a designer. So having those skills is really, really important. Now, a lot of the work that that you've done, I looked at your LinkedIn profile has been through ITN and you've been there for a really long time. Tell me about some of like the, the top things that you've done there as a designer. Like I'm interested in knowing what it's like designing for a television network okay well i mean a lot of the work that i did when i was there revolved around because it's a it's a news organization so it revolves around the daily kind of news output so anything from a terrorist attack to peace on social housing or something about unemployment or the economy etc and it's our job it was our job because i'm not i'm not there anymore but it was our job to effectively help the journalists to tell stories which they couldn't do with sound and picture alone. So if they needed to explain something quite complicated, like a plane crash or a girl went missing and they wanted to kind of illustrate that, then that's what we would generally do. So a lot of the work was working very closely with journalists and producers to basically tell their stories in a really visual and compelling way. And I guess with that, that means you kind of have to foster a pretty strong relationship with those individual reporters. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I worked with some very smart and talented producers and journalists when I was at ITN. And the interesting thing is, is that uh, particularly in television, picture is the most important thing. You know, the visuals are really important as well as being able to tell the story. So, but in saying that, you know, there are some journalists who maybe aren't as, weren't as confident in terms of how to deal with a graphic designer or how to communicate their things. So there generally has to be a back and forth in terms of how you interact. And I tended to find actually that the longer you worked with certain individuals, you can build up a trust and almost have a bit of a second hand about how Mm -hmm. you're going to do things. And, you know, what those were the best relationships where you basically built up a level of trust where you could feel confident to tell a journalist an idea, but also they'd feel confident enough to tell you an idea, which might have had only maybe 20% of 
something valid in it, but then you could take that and run with it and turn it into something that made like really good TV, basically. So that was really quite cool when it happened. Of your time working there, what would you say have been like some of your career highlights? I would say that my career highlights were quite a few, actually. I mean, if you work in an organization like that, you have the opportunity to work with some incredibly talented and, you know, award-winning people and work on some projects and kind of get insights into, I guess, the underbelly of what makes a great story and just kind of, I mean, for example, being in the office during 9-11 and seeing the pictures coming being there during the 7-7 attacks in London and seeing all the pictures coming in and trying to work out how to tell that story as it's breaking. I mean, the excitement, I mean, even if it's quite a morbid story, the excitement and the adrenaline that gets you going when there's something happening is something that's pretty unparalleled. So the highlights, I would say, are things where, you know, stories where I've contributed to which have won awards, I think in around 1999, maybe, I had the good fortune to work with the consulting arm of ITN on a rebrand for an Indian TV channel, a news channel. And this was probably one of my first projects where I was kind of basically given the baton, as it were, to kind of go ahead and actually come up with an idea, work on the branding, all of the kind of on-screen furniture, the title sequences and everything, and kind of come up with an idea in a package and then go out to India, to New Delhi, and deliver that to the client and work with Indian designers working in news as well to get the idea across and basically launch, launch a, a television network. It was actually called Headlines Today. And it was part of the Today Group based in Delhi, which is their equivalent, I guess, of like Time Warner. So that was probably one of the first big projects where I thought, wow, I'm really doing it. Other projects, I think, I mean, there are so many, but I've worked on numerous election programs. First of all, under the direction of my creative director, Glenn Marshall. And then when I'd taken over from Glenn in 2008, firstly, relaunching news at 10 which is i guess the equivalent of the nightly news so again coming up with the concept of what this thing was going to look like working with designers and producers and directors and editors to kind of get the idea across and set designers and effectively it's my concept so i've got to stand by and sort of yeah basically answer the brief and and kind of win the business basically so that was a real standout project again because the title sequence was amazing the set design was amazing i could probably get onto a little bit of that kind of stuff later it's one of these things where it gets a lot of press in the uk there at the time the news at 10 on itv you know maybe 20 30 years ago it was commanding at least you know 15 million viewers a night it's not so much now in a fragmented market but it's definitely a thing when the news changes and I was really fortunate to have been a part of that. Then fast forward to 2010 as well, working on the general election program. Again, the elections are really, really, it's kind of where a lot of the innovation happens in terms of information graphics and a lot Mm -hmm. of the things that happen during the election programs usually feed through to the other news programs over the next years afterwards. And again, here you're kind of going head to head with the BBC and Sky and, you know, CNN in the UK to basically present 
an election in a really interesting way. And I think the the great thing about ITN and ITV News is that they're quite fleet of foot. If you imagine that the BBC is like a steamship, ITN is like a speedboat. So we could get there faster with the results and just tell the stories in a way which was less stuffy with a bit more flair. And I definitely really capitalised on that during that project. So I'd say those three projects really were examples of projects where I think I really shone. The interesting thing about doing kind of that, I guess, television design or news design, I'm not really sure if I'm I'm categorizing it. It's like television television graphics and television graphics. graphics, The the interesting thing is that I feel that, and, and people listening may feel the same way, is that you can always tell when it's done right yeah. in terms of like just the clarity and the graphics. But like when something is off, it's way off. Yeah. Like it's a fine line between invisible and glaring in terms of how something looks. It could be colors or, or something like that, Yeah, which I find really interesting. Yeah, I think I think in the UK, I think that certainly compared to the news graphics in the US, I think the UK is probably a little bit more tempered in that regard. I mean, when I used to tell people what I did when I was there, people would always say, oh, is that like, you know, when the straps come up? And I think actually that's quite a good thing that people don't really notice that there's maybe 30 seconds or 20 seconds in in a package where there's some information graphics that come up because it's actually quite seamless. And certainly I think in the mid-2000s, there were times where we probably probably did overstep the mark where there's just an overuse of metaphors. So, for example, they would say, and this evening, a freeze on gas prices, and you would have the word gas frozen in 3D, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing, where it's just really a bit cheesy. Certainly when I was there and working with Gabby and some of the other guys, we really tried to create something which had a little bit of flair, gave a story context and actually added to the story as well. I mean, I think sometimes um, TV programs, particularly news, can be guilty of just overdoing it basically and the first question i would always ask a producer or an editor when they came in is okay so why do you need this graphic why do you need this communication because sometimes you might have this crazy animation will or you know all of these crazy effects when actually you could actually go out and film somebody and and actually tell the human story so i always feel that even in now in what i'm doing now that you kind of have to really think about what the person at home is going to get out of this communication or what the client is going to get out of the communication or what the customer is going to get out of the communication you know thinking about the user or the customer first as well as it's- trying to tell a story yeah, it sounds like simpler is better. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that about like the word gas and something is frozen. When I think about news here, like I think about local news stations, yeah. they can tend to be so cheesy with the graphics, particularly around weather. But like in general, mm. you'll see all these types of effects where it's like, is that really necessary? Like, I don't know if that's if that's adding anything. And from what you're saying, it can often help to sometimes just strip things down to their simplest elements. Yeah, I mean, I think that the problem with with most of these things is that, for example, with weather, there are pieces of software where you, you pretty much can just kind of generate 
the same graphic if you looked at like 20 news stations from around the world you probably see that they're all using the same software and these are things that maybe haven't necessarily been created by a designer but then if you think about how many television networks there are and they're all fighting for your attention with colors and all of these things you can see how there can just be a little bit of feature creep when it comes into all of these things and actually you tend to find that the designers don't really have much control over that because the network might have their own style. You might have a, a boss who maybe fancies himself as a bit of a graphic designer and wants to impart his own ideas about how things are going to go. I mean, it's the universal kind of conundrum for most designers, really, who want to be doing some really classy stuff, but you've got a client or a boss who's like, well, hey, this is what my kid drew. Can we do that today? Or I saw the title sequence to Mission Impossible. Can we do that today? You know, and it's off-brand and everything, but you kind of just have to go with it, unfortunately, sometimes. That would be really interesting to see the news open that way, the title <laughs> sequence for Mission Impossible. That would be great. Believe me, I've dodged many bullets like that. <laughs> yeah. So you worked your way through the ranks at ITN, yeah. and you said that you, you left rec- fairly recently. You left in 2014, right? Yeah, I left in 2014, yeah. So what have you been working on since then? I think one of the things that I've, wanted to do i've always been interested in technology and products and i found that television news was you know i guess i guess i'd done as much as i could in it i'd kind of risen through the ranks and you know worked with some amazing people and i just wanted to try something different so i figured that i had enough transferable skills in design to move into another area and the area which i chose was uh, user experience design which is an area which I think in terms of investment and in terms of kind of talent and innovation is really kind of what's popping right now. And I think it's probably got a lot more longevity. When you think of where all the eyeballs are now in terms of consuming news or consuming content, they're generally on smaller screens. Not many people are watching TV or if they are, they may be watching it on a laptop or an iPad. And all of these products need design. They need design input. And so I thought, I figured that there was an opportunity for me to kind of switch lanes, so to speak, and get involved in that. I feel like that's probably a good use of the skills that you built up at, at ITN also. Yeah, I would say. I mean, I think obviously I have, you know, really strong leadership skills. I'm a designer. You know, I've led projects, but working in tech and in UX and UI, there's a little bit more of a process involved. If you're developing for a mobile app, for example, it tends to have much more of an engineering process to it rather than a full creative process. That doesn't mean there isn't creativity in it, but it's just a slightly different process. But I found that it's actually sharpened the way in which I work because I'm no longer The way I was trained was basically a client comes to you, they need a problem solved, you come back with a logo or a letterhead or a website or an animation, and it's kind of subjective as to whether it's going to work. When you're dealing with a mobile product or a website or an app, it really is about the user. It's about what the user thinks. It's not much, it's not a lot about what the designer thinks. You know, one button placed in the wrong way, if you're doing an e-commerce product, could probably lose the company a few million dollars so the kind of iterative way of working and getting feedback from users i found really 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 interesting because 
as you go through any form of testing or QA, the feedback that you get actually helps you to build a better product. And then design makes that even better. It's kind of like the icing on the cake in terms of providing an experience that people really want to love and use. Now, a lot of the work that you've done has won like a number of awards. Um, I, I think as I was doing research, I saw that it's also been included in a book by another black British designer, Eddie O'Para. Yeah. Talk to me about that. The book or Eddie? (laughs) Both. Yeah, talk about both. Okay, so I studied at the London College of Printing. Eddie and I started in the same year. Eddie is now a partner at Pentagram in New York, but we studied Mm -hmm. at the London College of Printing together. I mean, he's still a good friend of mine and we talk all the time. And he was working on a book. I can't remember the other author's name, but he was working on a book about color. And the book featured, you know, some of his colleagues from Pentagram, like Michael Beirut and some of the guys from, I can't even remember all of the designers. But but anyway, it was a really, really interesting book. It was a kind of educational book about color. And he'd asked me to contribute in terms of my experience working in news, in particular how color influences the news so Mm -hmm. we had just done itv news a rebrand alongside an an agency called lambinen who are really well renowned in the uk for doing a lot of television branding from the bbc to o2 etc so i collaborated with them when i was creative director at itn on a relaunch for itv news so i basically kind of used that as the opening to talk about color in news and just how we use color in news it's, it's quite interesting because there are kind of little kind of things that happen when you're we are working in news which kind of you can dial up and down in terms of creating emotion and creating kind of responses in people so for example a classic one might be that if there was a murderer or someone who was on the loose or he'd been caught then you might make that person black and white and put a vignette around them and make it a bit darker and if it was a story which was light-hearted you'd make it you know slightly more light and airy etc and maybe choose certain fonts if if it was within the branding style so i wrote a chapter in the book the book's called the color book how easy is that <laughs> it's oh, called the color, the color book. <laughs> i didn't even think about this now that you mentioned it sort of color and color psychology and how that influences i guess not just how the news is portrayed but also i guess how people will will sort of learn about it can you talk a little bit about that about the use of color in design yeah, in, in news design particularly, like how does that influence the news? I mean, I think the first thing is is that actually the book's called Color Works, actually. But I think, well, first of all, most news organizations have their own kind of branding. So in the UK, you know, the BBC is red, Sky News is kind of blue, I guess. In the States, NBC is generally blue. But then even if you think about NBC throughout the day, for example, you have the Today program, which is quite light. And during the day, then it kind of gets darker right through to the nightly news where it's quite dark and blue and quite serious. So all of those things are quite important, I think, when you're designing a program and thinking about the brand. And then within that, in terms of design, you're then also thinking about how you can use color, image, and text to basically convey a story or an idea in a compelling way. You know, and I think depending on the brand guidelines, you can kind of 
move to various degrees in order to achieve that. I mean, if you're making a children's news program, it's going to look very different to the nightly news on NBC. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I get what you mean. Yeah. So I guess in terms of training, I think it's something that probably comes quite intuitively to most designers about how to use color appropriately and how to use shape, line and color and composition. So I think it's it's, it's it was a really interesting process just writing this chapter and being interviewed by Eddie for the book. So now that you're not doing, I guess, news design now for ITV and you said you've moved more into UX. What sort of companies are you working with now? Are you, I guess, freelancing or are you working at an agency or something? Yeah, so I I contract. So I've worked with, I mean, I've been doing uh, UX for uh, two years and UX and UI for two years. And I've worked for a range of um, startups, um, both in the UK and in the US. And the type of work ranges from maybe just doing a UX review on a product which is already existing or working with clients to actually define what the product needs and also thinking about the uh, the needs and goals of, of, of users as well. And, and I think that is something that I found really interesting after working in s- for so many years in TV is that, you know, just put in the work in to do the research, to do a competitor analysis, to do stakeholder interviews and all of those kinds of things, you can get so much knowledge and insights about what it is you're you're going to be doing. I tend now to make a lot of assumptions and the clients that I work with as well, also trying to make sure that they don't have too much unconscious bias and actually be open to new ways of doing things and new ways of thinking about their products. I mean, I think in the tech industry, things move so fast that you kind yeah. of have to be kind of thinking ahead. And I think if you really, really listen to your users and how they're using your products, you can actually create much better products. I feel that with a lot of companies, that part about listening to the users is something that often just gets lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Uh, they can be they can be so, you know, kind of focused on making sure that something looks good or that it meets a certain business goal, but not really taking into account because what you want and what the users want can often be totally different things. Yeah. And I, th- I would agree with that, but I think that it is a balance as well, because at the end of the day, if you have a business and you have an investment investment of say a million dollars and you've got shareholders and stakeholders who have a vested interest, they want to see a return. And what you tend to find with a lot of companies is that they'll quickly get a product to market because if you've got something to market, you can actually then get more investment to keep your product afloat. If you don't have a product, then really you're not going to be able to get any investment and you have no business. So I think that there's one thing to say that you've got a good idea and get something to market. But if you are trying to do something that's really successful, you actually really do have to look at the types of people who are using using your products and really kind of get into the weeds of how they're using your products and see if you can get some learnings from that in order to make the product better. And I think that's where product designers or user experience designers come into their own because if you're really really listening you can really focus on the goals and needs that are going to make that experience really great has it been a big change for you kind of moving from working with a news agency to now you know kind of contracting and setting your own hours yeah i mean i think that after 15 or so years of basically being 
in the rat race of working in a full-time position, I mean, I effectively made a career transition. You know, I've worked as a as a creative director at a very senior level and I decided to basically take a couple of steps back, learn about more about user experience design. I've got some fantastic colleagues who I learned from and who who I continue to to work with. And and also the process is is very different. I mean, from working in television news, you could be have a deadline of about two or three hours to do something. And now I work in sprints, two to three week sprints, where you're going through a whole process of defining goals and needs of your users, maybe doing a kickoff workshop, lots of sketching and design studio, even before you've actually actually done any wireframes or any interaction design. But that said, it's still a challenge because I would describe the, ro- the job that I do now, a bit like doing a puzzle like a crossword or Sudoku, you know, you're sitting there with this problem of how to get a user from one part of a shopping cart to another or from one page to another and how to get somebody to do that in a simple way, but then also testing that with the user and doing user research and then coming back and iterating on those ideas and testing again to make sure that you've got it right and always, always kind of refining the design and making them feel and work better. So the process, I think, is is different, but I think that the, I think the part of really listening to how users, I mean, certainly from my perspective anyway, thinking about how the user thinks and uses your product is really the best way to kind of get feedback, but also obviously thinking about the business goals of all the stakeholders and, you know, all of the commercial pressures, et cetera, as well. Let's kind of switch gears here a little bit. We kind of want to talk more about, you know, you as a person. Mm -hmm. Who do you look to for inspiration? Like, who do you admire? To be honest with you, most of my inspiration comes from my close friends, not necessarily even designers. I mean, much like Eddie, Opara and Gabby grew up in London and the design scene in London, obviously it's a big metropolitan city. So there's always a lot of creative things going on and you can walk down, you know, any street and get inspiration. I have, you know, friends and mentors who have kind of been a real support and inspiration to me. When I first started straight out of college, I worked and still do work with an agency called the Watchman Agency, mm-hmm. which is was set up by a group of guys who basically focus on marketing and PR, but very much from a below-the-line advertising perspective. And a lot of their work they do is about culture. It's about kind of working with um, clients and really identifying not just cool demographics, but the things, I mean, basically they were really ahead of their time in terms of the work that they did, you know, for uh, the RAF and Camper and Cat and so many, so many different clients and Levi's, et cetera. So they, my friend Dean Ricketts, um, I, th- I would say he's probably one of my biggest inspirations just in terms of the way that he thinks. I have, obviously, Eddie is a great inspiration, and I've got some other designer, you know, mainly designer friends. So there's a designer called Brent Rollins, who, you know, I always admire his work as well because it has such a creativity and a flair and, and a sense of humor as well. So 
I mean, I tend to just like what I like. You know, I'm not one of these guys who's a real into fanboys and rock star designers. Mm -hmm. If you told me some cool designer's name, most of the time I wouldn't know them. But if I've met them, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to meet some of, you know, Eddie's hollies like Michael Beirut and Paula Scher, for example, who I admire their work. Um, Milton Glaser, I love his work. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of across the board, but I'd say generally the inspiration comes from, you know, my close circle of friends. Now, just as, you know, we kind of mentioned at the top of the show, when Gabby kind of came in and she was working at ITN, yes. you sort of served as like a mentor for her. Have you had any mentors that have helped you out in your career? Yes, I have. And, you know, they kind of range. I mean, I talked about Dean, for example, at the Watchmen Agency. Um, mm-hmm. One of my, you know, my creative director, Glenn Marshall, when I was at ITN, was a great source of inspiration and help and support. Later on in my career, you know, towards the end of my time at ITN, there's an amazing lady called Leslie Everett, um, who was my boss, who, has, you know, taught me so much. Not, I mean, she was, she trained as a designer as well, but a real inspiration also in terms of leadership, you know, because I think the thing is, is that it's cool being a designer and, you know, being in the trenches and all that kind of stuff. When you have to kind of lead and inspire a team of designers, I mean, designers are kind of tricky at the best of times, but if you've got a lead like eight of them, it can come up, can throw up, throw up challenges and how to inspire and how to motivate and how to kind of keep the creativity flowing. So I would definitely cite both Glenn and Leslie as, as kind of sort of really direct mentors to me. And I learned so much from them. Um, also actually another person I would say is another manager. She's now um, president of NBC news. Uh, her name is Deborah mm-hmm. Turnus and she is such a creative force of nature and was so supportive of me kind of in the middle of my time at ITN where I had a lot of projects and a lot of um, ideas and she was really somebody who championed me and helped me to kind of effectively be the best that I could be. You know, she was such a great support. And I think that, I don't know if you, well, your listeners must have watched The Wire, but everybody needs a rabbi, you know, (laughs) everybody needs a rabbi. And if you want to get further ahead and you want to learn you need to kind of tap into those people whether it's in your own network or in your professional network who can kind of advise you and help you steer a path to make you a better creative and a better person what are some ways that you think people can do that like find their rabbi like find out these (laughs) these mentors these people that can help advise them i think you should always try to surround yourself with people who are better than you And people who you can share ideas with and also people who are going to be honest with you. I think that's probably one of positive and negative traits in a sense is that I'm pretty straight with people. I'm not rude, but I'll tell, you know, Gabby will tell you, I'll I'll be pretty straight if something's not working. But equally, Mm -hmm. to be intuitive enough to know when something is affecting somebody as well, I think is just as important. And But just going back to what you were saying, I think that it could be anybody. It could be a family member. It could be someone in your job. But just somebody who you know that you can go to, you know, in confidence if need be and just say, look, I'm having a problem with this. What do you think I should do? And they will give you, if not the right answer, but, a, 
if not the right answer, but a balanced kind of perspective and allow you the freedom to make the correct decision. And also there's nothing wrong with making mistakes as well. I mean, certainly in the tech world, there's a thing that's called fail often and fail fast because mm-hmm. the more you fail and the quicker you fail, the quicker you get to iterate and kind of rally. I think traditional designers are so maybe sometimes concerned with doing the right thing and impressing some audience, you know, they may be lose sight of that and become a little bit too precious. So I think being open to failure, I think is probably one of the biggest and hardest lessons that one can learn as a designer or any kind of profession, really, because that's the only way you learn. Earlier, you mentioned, of course, that you and Eddie Opara went to school together. Did you study design in school? Like what initially, I guess it's a two-part question. First, what initially drew you to design? And was that something that you kind of, I guess, picked up and went with throughout life? Or did you just kind of latch onto it later on? Well, I mean, even as a youngster, from as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be an artist. My dad is an architect. My mom is a, was a legal secretary. And there was always pen and paper in the house. So I was always drawing me and my friends always drew, drawing cartoons, etc. And then into my early teens, just kind of embracing hip hop culture and kind of getting into graffiti and all of that kind of stuff. And when I was about 13, my art teacher, I said, oh, I want to be an architect. And he said, well, have you thought about being a graphic designer? And I didn't really know what it was, but it was at a time where in the UK you pick your options for the subjects that you're going to study to what you might go on to do in higher education. And I looked mm-hmm. at, first of all, I looked at how many years it takes to be an architect and the seven years and design was like about four or five. And I was like, okay, that sounds pretty cool. And I looked at what it was and I realized actually that you know, in terms of advertising and poster design, I mean, this is pre-internet. I was already kind of thinking in that way. I really loved TV commercials and I loved posters and I was a very visual person. So it just, it just clicked. So from the age of about 12 or 13, I knew I wanted to be a graphic designer and that's what I wanted to do. And that was it. And that was my single-minded focus. And that's what I wanted to do. Were, Were your parents really supportive of you going in that route? Yeah, they were. They were. I mean, I don't think, I, was, I wasn't particularly academic, so it kind of got to the point by the time I was 16 that actually I wasn't going to do business and finance or I wasn't going to become a scientist. This is what I wanted to do, so I put all of my efforts into making a go of it. And I think I've been somebody who has always kind of maybe got in on the skin of my teeth, and then when I've got in there, I've really, really worked really hard and then got to the next level and then worked really hard again so my Mm -hmm. work my work ethic is pretty consistent and I put the work in and I you know that's what I tell young people when I come to see them what you think you might lack in talent you can more than make up for in terms of worth work ethic and just your kind of own desire I guess really yes I mean and also it it really helps once you have that opportunity that you're able to kind of show that work ethic. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I really do think that having a work ethic, having a a really strong network of mentors and friends and supporters, you know, because sometimes even if you're a freelancer or a contractor, the work's not coming in and you tend to find that the work comes in from, 
from friends or colleagues or families or whoever who you've built a reputation before and they come back to you it's repeat business and it's good business yeah absolutely yeah so what's kind of been inspiring you lately i mean like you said you know when you you get into those periods where you just need that push that motivation what's been inspiring has it been a, a song or a movie or anything like that i would say i read a lot of of articles online even this morning, I was watching an old video with Stefan Sagmeister from Sagmeister mm-hmm. and Walsh, who he did this project called The Happiness Project, where he lived in Bali for about a year. They, the company takes a sabbatical every seven years, and they use that as an opportunity to kind of create new ideas, basically, for how the business is going to be for the next seven years. So kind of looking at different ways other designers and other creatives get inspiration or other writers I think is something that I always do I'm a bit of a sponge like that I just soak up everything you know I mean I was in Lisbon recently over the new year and just being out there and just looking at the architecture and you know taking photos on my phone for my Instagram you just kind of soak it all in you know with your camera eye you just soak it all in so i just feel that creativity is all around you and that really is the inspiration if you weren't doing what you're you know doing now what do you think you would want to do like say i don't know life just went in a completely different direction and you never ended up at (laughs) itn What do you think you would be doing well i mean one of the first things i'll say is that i never really let ITN defined me as a designer. I enjoyed my time there, but I've I've done so many things outside of ITN as a creative. I mean, after finishing at London College of Printing, I did an MA in documentary film. So I learned how to edit and make films and use a camera and made a couple of shorts, etc. I still kind of draw and sketch. I'm really into music. I don't DJ or anything like that, but you know, a lot of my friends are DJs and rappers and musicians. So they're a great source of inspiration and creativity. But if I wasn't a designer, honestly, I think I'd be a chef. Hmm. I think I would probably have been a chef or maybe a filmmaker, but I kind of still do that anyway but I think I've probably been a chef I mean when I finished college there was a year where we had to do a kind of vocational certificate and I did a kind of I guess it's if a certification if you want to become an entry level kind of in a kitchen or whatever you know you learn cutting skills and preparation and all those kind of things and I was really quite good at it and in fact, the guy who was running the course, it was like, are you sure you want to be a designer and you don't want to be a chef? And I like to cook. I like to bake. I'm always baking bread. And I've really learned a lot about baking. And I think it's interesting because both of those things still involve a process. They still involve kind of manipulating ingredients or materials for an outcome, which might, you know, you just kind of don't know how it's going to turn out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So... I think those are the two things that I would have probably done. The baking came much later, though. (laughs) Chef Kojo has a nice ring to it. Uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's interesting. I tell people a lot that I feel like cooking and design are so intertwined, like particularly web and graphic design. I feel like it's, it's the same thing where you just have these raw ingredients that you need to transform into something through some level of skill and alchemy and luck you know 
well, yeah. yeah, but I think like any artist or any designer, I think there is a part of, of, of design which has a spiritual element to it. Because when you are creating something, you know, I'm creating something, I'm putting my heart and my soul into it, and then I'm going to hand it over to somebody, you know. So if Mm -hmm. you spend four hours baking a loaf of bread and you give it to somebody, that's quite important. It's just as important as if you spent three weeks or even a year working on a branding project or an app or something like that. I really do feel that there's a part of it in you which you pass on. There's Mm -hmm. a part of you in it. And so for me, it's not a vocation, you know, it's what I was born to do, as simple as that. And if I wasn't working in a company or when I'm in my 70s or 80s and I'm retired and on a beach somewhere, I'll still be designing, I'll still be thinking about that idea, I'll still be sketching in my sketchbook or painting or drawing. It's like an itch that, it's a thing that won't go away and I can't turn it off, basically. My best time to create is from midnight onwards and you can't switch it off when ideas are coming they're just they're coming and that's it well when i see you on the next series of the great british bake off (laughs) i can say i talked to a a revision (laughs) yeah i don't think i'm that caliber just yet but that's my aim definitely that's definitely my aim I've, i haven't actually baked anything for a while but it's such mm. a therapeutic process particularly like when you sit in front of a computer all day it's just really nice to do something with your hands and one of the things i'm thinking about now is how to create designs and products that actually live in the environment and live within a space you know and how we can kind of how I can kind of get away from the screen and paper and actually start kind of creating things which live and exist, whether they're installations, whatever. That would be something that would be quite interesting to me because I haven't really done that kind of work before. Well, this this kind of segues into my my last question. Yes. I was going to ask, where do you kind of see yourself in the next five years or so? I mean, this could be something that you end up doing. Yeah, I mean, in the next five years, I'm hoping to have – kind of I suppose cemented my skills in product design you know I'd like to think that I have something which uh, I own I'm kind of getting to the point where maybe in years to come I could actually have something of my own you know with my name or a company or whatever which where I can do more products but also to kind of have the freedom and the conviction to be able to do the type of work that I want to do I think that we're living in an age where the, the kind of the designer as auteur has kind of come back around from the mid 90s and we're able to do so many things with technology and 3D printing and music and all of these things and it'd be really great to be able to in a sense impart a little bit more of myself into the work and unfortunately the only way maybe you can only do that is if you've got your own shop so that's maybe where I'm thinking but certainly being a contractor is really great because you actually do get to work with a variety of different clients on a range of products and you can really learn and it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning this idea of really listening and seeing always feeds back into the work. So that's really one of the important lessons um, that I carry with me moving forward. Well, Kojo, just to kind of wrap everything up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? So uh, they could check out my website, which is 
Kojo, K-O-J-O, surname B-O-A-T-E-N-G.com, kojoboating.com, or I'm on Twitter at kboating, K-B-O-A-T-E-N-G. So yeah, those are the the two kind of main places um, you can find me. All right. Well, sounds good. Well, Kojo Botang, thank you so much for taking time out of your day for coming onto the show. I know when people are listening to this, they might be listening in the morning. I know it's actually kind of late where you are now. So I do appreciate you taking time out for this. I think there was a lot that you had to say here that there's just a lot of little nuggets. I know when I listen back to this, I certainly oh. will, will be writing down. No- I've been taking notes now, but yeah. I certainly will be taking more notes. I mean, just things about design, about your design process. Yeah. And then also, I think just the way that you're able to take that design thinking and apply that in so many other types of applications, whether it, it is UX or if it's cooking or if it's something different like that. I think sort of like you said before we started recording, you have a special set of skills. I get that now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. I mean, I'm always I'm always adding to them. And I think, as I said, I think one of the last things I said is, is I think having that freedom and conviction to be able to try different things and go to different places is the important thing. You know, I'm, I've got more clients that I'm working with in the States as well. So there are opportunities, there are much more opportunities there. And after being in the same place for like 15 or some years, it's really nice to kind of be able to come up for air and realize that there's, you know, such a richness and opportunity. And I think probably the thing I would say is that to really be able to, go for it and to use your set of skills almost carry it in your knapsack and connect with people and add their ideas and cross fertilize and collaborate it's all kind of the fun of the game for me really i hear you well man again thank you so much for for coming on the show for sharing your knowledge and hopefully we'll be hearing a lot more from you soon so thanks a lot oh thank you And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Kojo Boateng and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Kojo and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it extremely simple. They have great in-depth reporting, new and improved autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the domain extensions out there. You ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Band Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. It helps us get new listeners. It helps us move up in the iTunes ranks. It lets people know that this is an award-winning design podcast. Can't really say that about too many shows out there, just saying. But uh, (laughs) you leave us a great review. I'll even read it right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work Revision Path is doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and consider becoming a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. 
Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.